You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. This journey towards the uh, arrival of, of Christ, the, the incarnation when God has come into flesh in the form of a babe in this town named Bethlehem. It's a fulfillment of a promise that God had made to his people long ago, and we call that season Advent. Advent in Latin means coming or arrival. And the aim for us in this season is to look back at the coming of the Messiah and to study the ancient anticipation of those hoping for the promise of a Messiah in those days so that we would reflect and remember and celebrate the arrival of Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people, but more so that we ourselves might find better rest in seeing a God that is faithful to his promises knowing that one day that God has made a promise to us, that Christ will return, that he will come back and establish his everlasting kingdom here on earth, not made and led by man, but ruled and made by God himself, a kingdom full of those who love God. And so the question that faces us today, or questions that face us today, is do you know that promise? Do you know that promise? Do you, do you know what we are waiting for? Do you, do you know that we are waiting? And more importantly, do you believe what we are waiting for is far better than what we currently have? And so we examine those questions today. So let us first pray and then we'll continue. Lord, we come before you today with humble hearts, believing that your word is the sufficient truth for our life. We believe that the spirit brings these words alive in our hearts. And so, Lord, as we go through Genesis 3 today, will you use your spirit to convict us? Will you use your spirit to bring these words to life and gladness and joy and hope in this season? And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you today. We submit ourselves to the authority of your word, believing that you have paid it all for us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name, amen. Now, for a number of us in this room, we have a shared lineage. We have a shared human history of us coming into the United States in one particular entry point. We have ancestors that have arrived in this country via a boat that anchored itself on an island in New York Harbor called Ellis Island. Now, from 1892 to 1954, it is estimated that over 12 million immigrants passed through Ellis Island, most of them carrying very little money, very little resources, had very little connection in the new world, and they didn't have any identification or paperwork. They lacked security and housing provisions. They didn't even have jobs. Yet they came. 
And why did they come? Why did they come? Now, certainly there would be lots of individual reasons, but in general, there was a promise that they believed about this new world, a promise of unalienable rights given, rights determined not by status or wealth, but by creation, human rights endowed to everyone by their creator. And the endowments of those rights on every individual meant equality, that each individual was just as significant as the other. And that promise was heard throughout the world as it was penned through the words of Thomas Jefferson, who wrote this famous phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are the pursuit, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was the promise of America. And this is what drove people to this land by the millions. Now, why would people with nothing to their name risk not only their lives, but the lives of their families to come to a land that had zero guarantees afforded to them? Can we not say that hope makes us do crazy things? Hope makes us do crazy things. America gave hope to millions of people around the world for a better life, a life that was based upon the promises that were written by Thomas Jefferson. To believe a promise is to have hope. To believe a promise is to have hope. Hope of a better outcome. Hope is based upon believing that something is more promising. But more than that, it's about rejecting the status quo of our lives, meaning that hope pulls us into the future, but also pulls us away from our past and our present situations. And so what that means is that hope in a promise is only as strong as understanding our discontentment with our current situations. So much greater was the promise of America to the people all over the world that their, of, than their current and former situations that they literally came here without a penny to their name, believing that living here was, with nothing was far better than anything else. Maybe you've heard the phrase that the light shines brighter in the darkness. Like, light is much more visible, much more brighter when it's contrasted with increasing darkness. Hope follows that same pattern. We hope more ferociously in a promise when it stands in greater contrast to our present and past situations. And so to borrow some terminology from this season, if we are to make room in our hearts and our lives today, in this season and every season, for greater joy and love of Christ, we must enlighten ourselves deeply at the contrast between the promises that God has given to us and the realities of the circumstances that they were birthed out of. The very, very first chapter of our Bible in Genesis tells us of a paradise, a beautiful place without struggle, without envy, without lacking, full of perfect joy, perfect dignity and worth. It was, as the scripture says, very 
good. God and mankind walk together in perfect harmony and peace. And then if we were to turn our Bibles to the very last book in the book of Revelation, to the very last chapter, we would read again of a beautiful paradise where the river of life runs bright as crystals through it that echoes very much what it was like in Genesis chapter 1. And so in the beginning, paradise, and in the end, paradise. And so let me ask you, is this then paradise? Is this paradise? Are you satisfied today? Are you full today? Are you content today? Are you, are you stable today? Is there a crystal river within our sight? We would agree, wouldn't we, that if this were paradise, then those realities would be settled and present. We would agree, then, wouldn't we? But this is not paradise, in fact. That this is not paradise. And that our bodies and our bills and our news cycles and our hearts confirm that to us. Because every day we are approached with dystopia and chaos rather than utopia and perfection. In our natural state, humanity is restless and broken and searching. And so if we began in paradise and we end in paradise, then something must have happened along the way that has made this idea of a restored paradise a promise given to us rather than our current reality. The last chapter of the book of Revelation is a future promise that will be given to us by God, which means we need to know when and why that promise was given to us. You know, we have spent quite a bit of time in this church talking about the fall of mankind because it is significant for our faith and our greater love of Christ, an event that is recorded just three chapters in to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 3. Mankind chooses themselves over God. They are led to believe and then rationalize that they deserve to be like God rather than simply enjoying and worshiping the, and, and, and enjoying the benefits of, of, of loving God in his paradise. Instead, we want it to be God. Satan or Lucifer, the fallen angel, disguised himself in creation as a serpent and deceived mankind's people, people of the world, into sin. And the consequence of that vent, the consequences of the fall, are, are nothing short of cataclysmic. Paradise was broken. The very fabric that creation operated on to love and enjoy God with all of that we had was torn. And all out rebellion and chaos has ensued ever since. To say that the fall has changed everything that we know about the world, our life, work, and our relationships is to sell it short. 
the depths of how fractured and broken the world and humanity currently is can only be fractionally sensed in our understanding that we once walked naked amongst each other and God, completely without fear, trepidation, or anxiety. As the scripture says, we were naked and unashamed. And in our shame, we hid from God. And so let's look at Genesis 3 here. In verse 3, verse 14, it says, that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You know, before God turns the conversation and addresses the serpent, he acts very judiciously, walking through what had happened with the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. He asks, who told you you were naked? He says to Eve, what is this that you have done? It was a step-by-step process of discovery, not for God's greater knowledge, but to reveal to mankind their folly. And yet as he turns here to address the serpent, we find no discovery process. But we see God speak with certainty and authority to the serpent. And he says, because you have done this, because you have done this, here is what God knows that we don't seem to get right, that there is no redeemable quality to the devil, that there is not a hint of morality in him. There's not a hint of goodness within him. This did not happen by some mere accident. He didn't mess up and accidentally break all of creation. God knows that this was an attempt to destroy his creation, usurp his power and his glory. And he makes no doubt of his hatred for what he has done. Because you have done this, and God judges definitively and decisively the serpent. A curse befalls first physically onto the snake and then spiritually and eternally onto the great deceiver himself, Satan. And for a brief moment here in Genesis 3, it seems as though the coup of the deceiver is to be successful. But that momentary pleasure is quickly forgotten here in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent becomes cursed above all the livestock and all the beasts of the earth. Now, every animal would feel the effects of the wake of the fall. Sin ushered death into a creation in which it previously did not exist. All animals will now die, but only the serpent will be cursed. Only the serpent. It was made to crawl on its belly. And because he was crawling on its belly, it would eat of the dust all the days of his life. This is a picture of humiliation, of humiliation. Satan thought he won the battle, and then God humiliates him to grovel on the ground all the days of his life. So there is some element of an appearance change here in Genesis 3. I am not sure what the serpent would have looked like before this event. I don't know if it was a decently cuddly fellow with arms and feet or if it was just ginormous beast, but his appearance was changed in this moment. Now, you could ask, why would God curse a non-image-bearing creation that was used simply as a tool by the devil? 
Well, in God's goodness to us, the servant, the serpent serves as a bit of typology or symbolism to remind us of how the world has decayed. The degradation that Satan has brought into the world, that when mankind sees the serpent, we're reminded of the fallenness of the world and the craftiness and the deception of the enemy. Now, I don't think that it is very much of a coincidence that almost all of humanity, to a fault, has a fear and a caution of snakes. I I believe that to be a grace from the Lord, that we are hardwired with caution, knowing there is something cursed about this animal, something significant about this thing. And then God unmasks the serpent, and he sends and addresses the uh, uh, sins of punishment and addresses the truest culprit, Satan himself. And he says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, enmity means here that there is a, a, a spirit of antagonism, that, that, that we become antagonistic It is to have conflict. God brings divine judgment on the devil. It is both swift and humiliating. God breaks the bond that he had made through the serpent with the woman. Eve, who had colluded with our enemy to disobey God and then brings the first man, Adam, into it. God breaks the bond and he puts enmity or struggle and strife between both the woman and himself, and her offspring, and the offspring of Satan. So God actually begins to work for mankind here. He is breaking the power, not perfectly, breaking the power that Satan had established in his deception. And then he subjugates him, Satan, not only to the authority of God, but he sentences him to live in continual frustration amongst the very people that once he once deceived. And so God will call out of this world a faithful remnant, an offspring, who will set themselves out to do the will of God on earth. And they will struggle not only against the powers of demonic forces, but the offspring of Satan, those who love the world and hate God. And these two groups of people will war against each other constantly. They will frustrate each other. But one day, a seed will come from the woman that will put an end to all of it. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He is a singular pronoun here. There would come an offspring whom would be hurt in his heel, struck in his heel, bruised in his heel by Satan, but he, the man, will bruise the great deceiver. Now, the Hebrew word here for bruise can be rendered into crush. And that is significant when you understand the difference of somebody crushing your heel as not a life-threatening injury, something that you would survive from, but if one would crush your head, that is a fatal blow. God makes a promise here. Can you hear it? He makes a promise here. 
that one day he will restore creation again, that he will thwart the plans of the enemies, that he will take the evil and he will turn it for good. God's people will war against the enemy and his people will one day see one in flesh come and crush the power and the person of Satan. And that will usher in an age of redemption where a new restored kingdom will begin to break through. Genesis 3.15 in the theological world is called the proto-evangelium. It means to have the first prototype. It is the first gospel given to mankind that after God banishes humanity out of the garden in our sin to live in a broken world with broken dispositions, that we would have a belief that one day God would come and he would destroy the enemy and he would restore again and make all things new. And so here in Genesis, in chapter 3, we learn that God did not give us over to the enemy, that he intends to save us. You know, when God lays out paradise, he says, it's all yours, not this one thing. Go flourish have joy, but above all things, trust me. But if you do it of it, you surely will die. Yet God did not crush his creation when they rejected him. He had every right to. I mean, consider, consider how costly one sin was. That the joy of paradise and the whole of communion with God is so perfect, so glorious, so good that the ripples of one sin is a death sentence to all of humankind. One sin is sufficient for death. Yet God does not turn on his people. Today we exist differently, but he has not forsaken those he loves, having every right to. And in this text we learn that if he is to save us, that if he is to rescue us, that it will require the destruction of our enemy, that God must crush the enemy who brought evil into his good creation. And we know that that destruction will be costly and hard. There is nothing easy about living in enmity in a fallen world where a great battle ensues every single day of our lives amongst those God has called to do his will on earth and those who have given themselves over to the world. A battle that is fought every day, both physically and spiritually, in realities that we don't know about. And furthermore, we get and glean from this passage is that saving and restoring the world will take far longer than it did to destroy it. But the destruction of the power of Satan lasting journey and today we still feel that effect and so let me paint you some contrast today as I pray that the spirit will give you greater hope in what we have to look forward to let me remind you today this is that paradise is broken and humanity has fallen we've heard the story we are living in a fallen world we are fallen people who are absent the most significant part of our design, a whole 
trusting, enjoyable relationship with God. We die, we envy, we lust, we hurt, we search for the wholeness we had with God all the days of our lives and other things. We prop ourselves up and insulate ourselves from a broken world and a diseased, selfish human heart through insufficient and fake gods that we find in the world. We follow after money and fame and structure and power and comfort as a means of propping us up from feeling the weight of our brokenness and the depths of our fall. But is not the bondage inescapable? and it's lacking, undeniable. Do we not feel it every day? Today, I want to remind you that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We don't have a political enemy. We don't have a school enemy. You don't have a work enemy. You don't have a social media enemy. You don't have a family enemy. You have an enemy capital E, enemy, one who is crafty and deceitful, whom deceives and tries to collude with humanity to frustrate the plans of God on earth. I don't think this is news to you. I don't think it's news to you. I think that we have a very real sense that is something there, there is something out there coming at us that there is an opposition in this world. But we as humanity, we want to put a face on those things instead of trying to understand the root of where it comes from. We want to say that you're my enemy or they're my enemy or, or you're the reason for the lot of my life, that if they weren't there, that I would be happier and full of joy. We have no problem creating enemies or believing in enemies. We just have problems believing in the right one. And Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of, the, of evil in the heavenly realms. Our goal is not to eradicate our enemies. Our goal is not to bring justice to those who oppose us and oppose God. It is to be a people to be a people who are content to do the will of God, that we would love God in such a way that we would become a light in the darkness to expose the work of our enemy and provide the glorious way out for those who are lost and deceived by the powers of darkness. Yet we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves if we defer our waywardness and our dereliction of duties as a light bearer in this world, if we, we deceive ourselves, if we skirt our responsibility as a believer and excuse our sin, blaming it on the work of the devil. Well, the devil made me do it. As if nothing else matters. We must understand that the same evil that entered the world through the serpent now lives in the human heart, that there is an enemy within me. The human heart, this moral, intellectual, emotional self that betrays us, that bends us towards pleasing ourselves. It's a product of the fall. We have an enemy outside of us and within us. Paul David Tripp wrote in one of his devotions, he says, here's what you and I need to understand and never forget. 
It is only ever the enemy inside of us that hooks us to the enemy evil outside us. The evil inside of us that hooks us to the evil outside of us. Sin begins with desires. There is an enemy within and without, and we must know that. And we must plan for it, and we must prepare ourselves for battle. But lastly, and more importantly, more importantly, let us look up from this broken and fallen creation in disarray, battling with our enemy, and let us glory in a promise. Because there is a promise. There is a promise that God is going to remake the world that he's gonna restore what was broken, that he will come and destroy the power of the enemy. And this is what we celebrate in Advent, that he has delivered on that promise, that he has come, that the child in Bethlehem, the son of God, Christ our Lord, Emmanuel, God in flesh, born of the woman, has come to trample the forces of evil, to defeat Satan, to free the captives. He has captured the keys to hell, and he has spared his faithful from the grips of death. He has come, and he has crushed the head of the snake. He did it for us. And so think about these immigrants in their millions that left their homes to come to America believing in a promise with great hope for something better. The contrast of what was versus what could be to them was great and clear. But what we celebrate this morning as exiles living in a fallen world, desiring to migrate to a restored paradise led by a faithful and loving God is that our motivation isn't hope for something better. We aren't going to a better place because we believe it to be better. We are moved to another place because we have hope. We possess hope. First Peter chapter one says this, Praise be to God and Father, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that shall never perish, spoil, or fade. We aren't hopeful, meaning that we're hoping or wishing for something better. We have hope. We possess hope by faith that Jesus Christ has done the work for us, that he has secured the promises of God for us. So great was the contrast between where we were and are in a broken and fallen world and that of the glorious kingdom of God that we could never work to find it. Immigrants could come to this country and they could work and find reputation and dignity and value, but we can never get the promises of God through our own efforts. So great was the contrast that only the God of the universe coming in flesh to do it for us would suffice. He is our hope. He is what secures us, which means this, is that all of our life is about living by faith and trust to him, to learn to love him 
above everything else. And so this is what we celebrate in this season, that God is faithful to his people and that he has come and he has brought hope to us in this world that he will take us by faith to a better place, a greater kingdom, and that he is bringing it to us now. That is the hope that we have, which means this, is that the Christian faith is not about work. It's not about you trying to earn God's sacrifice. It's not about you trying to learn to, be, to do something that God would love you more. Christ has done everything for us. The Christian faith is about rest. It is about resting in the truths and the promises and the love of God who is moving us by his own love to a better place. Will you celebrate him this season? Will you make room in your heart understanding where the promise was born from and how he has secured it for us in Christ? Let us rejoice in this season. Let us prepare our hearts and make room for the coming Messiah, Emmanuel.